Digital Dust is a history podcast about the stuff you learned in school with a perspective you might not have considered. Hey guys, uh, just a quick heads up before we get into the episode. Today we're going to be discussing the history of sex and sexuality. Obviously we're not going to get into anything graphic, but we are going to be discussing topics like institutional homophobia, as well as touching on issues like the AIDS crisis and the Holocaust. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Digital Dust. I'm Patrick. I'm Liz. I'm Robin. And I'm Katie. And today, oh, that fuck it. Okay. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Kestra Greer. Hi, Kestra. Hi, Kestra. Our first guest, Kestra. Woo! Tell us a little bit about yourself. Do you like long walks on the beach? What's your star sign? Uh, I am a Libra. I do like long walks on the beach. Um, I am a lesbian. That will become relevant in a moment. Love that Uh, for you. I'm also uh, one of the cohort, I guess. I'm in class with Patrick, Robin, Katie, and Liz. I'm one of their classmates. That's why I'm on here. Yeah, she's she's our first guest. But uh, but it's not like we just got a random person. Like, we know her. But she's our guest. So, Kestra, what are you here to talk to us about? What are you gonna What are you gonna teach us? I'm gonna talk about queer history, which is why I said Heck I was yeah. a lesbian because this is part of my lived experience. So anyway, that's awesome. Um, yes, I cool. Am a queer woman. Uh, terminology is weird and changes all the friggin' time. But yeah. I am a woman who is attracted to women. And there's a lot of incredibly cool history there, and I want to talk about it because a lot of times it doesn't get talked about. Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. We're very excited for this. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Lots to I learn today. Yes. Lots to learn. Lots of questions to ask, you know. Mm. Not weird, invasive questions. Don't worry. Fun questions. <laughs> Katie! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> I've had a lot of straight coworkers ask me a lot of weird, invasive questions when I cannot get away from them, so oh my hit goodness. me. Is there a funny one that you're just like, why Why did you even ask that? Oh, the classic is when do you decide sex is over? <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, because the great man asked no, you that. There's no man to finish and just stop. So, yeah. 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 Just give up. Yeah. And I, I said, when you get dehydrated. <laughs> which is not the correct answer but also that's a great answer. Yeah. but it did end the conversation which was my goal that's amazing yeah, that's... we love wow. that wow yeah. so anyway i guess i'll start with uh asking you guys a question uh what do you think of when you think of queer history Ooh. i think of um stonewall that's a pretty big one yeah, yeah. Of AIDS. gay liberation for sure yeah aids yeah that's what i was gonna say gay rights movement Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of the sexual liberation movement of the 1960s. Good job. Yeah, <laughs> we passed. <laughs> Everyone gets oh, participation yes. marks. You all get five out of five. But yes, those are all very important parts of queer history. Uh, but it, history of not being straight does not start or end with Stonewall or the AIDS epidemic. It starts way, way before that, and it's continuing today. I mean, we did have uh, Katie when you hosted your podcast. We were talking about homosexuality in ancient Greece. So we were, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like 
I feel like queer history is, is like race history, other sorts of histories like this, where like you, there's a history that everyone knows, but then there's so much more that's like before and after and everything. And so. Exactly. I'm excited. I want to learn more. It's going to be good. So I guess I'll start with some like terminology so everyone knows what we're talking about mm. and when we say certain things, because it can get really confusing really quickly. So to start, I have a document. The people listening can't see this, but there are many documents. <laughs> I've written just one, but there are hundreds. So the first term is sex. Sex, when we're talking about like social constructs kind of thing, in this context means what set of genitalia you have. When you're born in a hospital, the doctor will assign you a sex at birth, depending on what genitalia you have. And there are the two binary options we like to think of being male, you have a penis and testicles, being female, you have a vagina. But there are also intersex people who have genitalia of both sexes um, in various combinations, and that is a whole huge issue. But even from the mm. beginning, sex is more complicated than we think it is. So sex is what you're assigned at birth. So I was assigned female at birth. So when I came out, the doctor said, yes, she has female genitalia. And that was kind of the end of that. And then I also identify as female, my gender is female. So when I became old enough to like realize what was going on, other than the fact that it was suddenly very bright and very cold, I was like, yeah, I'm a female. So I agreed with the doctor. And that makes me a cisgender person. I agreed with the assignment. If you don't agree with the assignment, you might be a transgender, you might be a non-binary. So there's a whole host of terms in, that uh, describe mm -hmm. relationship to sex and gender. and. Um, Gender is generally agreed on in society to mean what it means to be male or female or somewhere in between. And what it means to be male or female or somewhere in between changes over time. It shifts. And it's culturally constructed. Yeah. Heck yeah. Gender is fake. We made it up. Yeah. <laughs> gender is also tied in with race and class as like the big three determinators of how you are categorized socially. So like someone will look at you and see and try and judge your race, gender, and class, and that's how they place you within society. It's kind of crappy, but again, it's all made up. We all pretend gender is real, but it's all made up. We all agree mm -hmm. on definitions. It's the monopoly money of being a human being. <laughs> it's it's the stock market, really. It's the same thing. <laughs> gender and the stock market are the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically everything is constructed. Like, nakedness well, I mean, like... is constructed. You ever think of that? The physical world like, is like real, you know, like yes, the thing. physical world but, is real. But the but way in which we apply meaning to the real world is yes, all our own yes. thing. These are labels. Like that time we... is constructed, like anything. But like yeah. time is constructed, but it's also not because time would move without us assigning it value, right? Time no, would continue now, Katie, on. Okay, are we going into metaphysics? Do you want to get into a metaphysical debate here? <laughs> I mean, it would. No, there's no debating yeah. that. But, but it, it, it would, it, time would move on, but not in a way that we would quantify or well, in a yeah, way that we would calculate. Well, yeah, because you would eventually or, die. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that if humans never existed, time oh, or whatever would still be going. But like, exist, but, would but let me finish, Katie. Excuse you. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just that, like, the way in which we perceive time is constructed by humans. And so, like, like yes. what we would say is, as, as time has progressed half a century or something, if we never existed half a century, it means jack shit. Like that's, Correct. Yes. That, yeah. you know, it's constructed. We have a meeting at 10 a.m. today. It's the same thing. Like, 10 a.m. Yeah, is just right. exactly. constructed. But the world anyway. will always spin. Sorry, Kate. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's not relevant to this topic. It's spinning without oh us my right God. now. <laughs> Open up a can of worms here. Animals perceive time 
there's this whole thing. Bees get jet lag. Look up that vine. It's incredible. <gasps> bees get jet lag? Bees I get love jet lag. Bees. So okay. cool. Okay. Also, I, I am now realizing that the whole spiel could have been taken out of context. Obviously, your gender is real. Obviously, who you identify as oh, a person yes. <laughs> is a very real, important part of yourself. I'm not meaning to say all gender is fake, but like how we approach gender is very much a societal construct. And then sexuality is who you were attracted to. I am a homosexual woman, meaning I am attracted to the same gender. The rest of you guys, I don't want to assume, but uh, I know the vast majority of you are heterosexual, meaning you're attracted to the opposite gender. Sexuality and gender are not biological traits. They're very complicated subjects. If you're thinking, wow, this is an insanely large and complicated topic to get into in one hour, you're it right. <laughs> Correct. But we're doing it anyway. Yeah. That's, a, that's what this podcast does. Take large topics and we pretend we can do it in an hour. That's honestly the life of a student. You're looking at your massive like exactly. uh, thesis and your prof's just t- look, giving you those eyes that I don't know if you can do that in 10 pages. And you're like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. <laughs> and it's it's never fine. Yeah. Never. It's never fine. You're always crying at the end. <laughs> all the pages yeah. you cut out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All the facts. Yeah. So anyway, that's all the theory I have because theory is inherently boring and I will die on this hill. I agree. <laughs> So, well, I like theory. Okay. <laughs> I like theory too. It's okay. Thanks. Uh, I'm also going to use queer as a blanket statement for everyone who isn't um, straight cisgender. I realize some people have a problem with that term, but currently it is the most accepted one in the community today to discuss this kind of history. Ooh. All right. So All right. right. And we're going to talk about the history of queer history. So queer history isn't inherently sexual. Being gay doesn't make you inherently an only sexual person. Teaching gay history is not at all inappropriate for children. It's not at all inappropriate for schools. You're not going to somehow expose children to lewd stuff like teaching them gay history. They're going to just learn that it's cool to be not straight. And I say this because the first time I encountered gayness outside of like a punchline of a joke on a playground by a sixth grader was reading Stephen King's It when I was like 12. Oh, mm. God. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, in that book, a gay character is, like, brutally murdered by a monster clown. And I was like, right. huh. Yep. Gay character? Anyway, that was my first uh, gay representation. And it wasn't great. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. Well, all That's... right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I only just learned about that, by the way. I'd never seen it because I hate horror and I don't read horror. But I, I Katie, recently read you and I are so similar. It. I'm actually the same person. We honestly are. You're so bad. I'm like, it's not even scary. Oh my god, no, I can't. No, I can't. It's I'm not, not a scary movie. I don't give a shit. I'm not, I'm not watching it. You can't Thank make to me. differ. Also, that's a terrible way for someone to be introduced to the concept of being gay outside of like a punchline. After that, I had an incredibly good experience with my sexuality. I came out to my family when I was like. 15, 16, and everyone was like, yes, this is a course, very cool. No one gave me a hard time. My family, my entire community was incredibly loving and accepting. For rural PEI, this was pretty cool of them, gotta say. For our American listeners, because we have a lot of American listeners apparently, PEI is a small island on the East Coast. It's a tiny island full of potatoes, and what else? Kestra's from this island. It's full of potatoes, it's full of potatoes and Kestra. And, <laughs> and that's about an Anne of Green Gables. Anne of Green Gables <laughs> and red sand. Red sand, red soil, yeah. And yeah, cow's yeah. ice cream. Mm, yeah. The best ice cream. Oh, cow's so is great. Are you sure you want to open a can of worms and be talking about PEI? Because 
PEI is a very small province. It's very rural. I uh, was surrounded by cows for most of my life. So um, for my community to be like, yes, we are obviously very cool with you being gay. No one gave me a hard time. I wasn't bullied. My family has bought me all of my gay pride merch. Aww. Mm. Aww. That's awesome. That's really cute. That's really cool. So anyway, I had a point with this, and it was um, telling children about queer history is not sexual or anything, and it actually might be a very good thing so that they can learn that they aren't a monster who's going to be eaten by an evil clown. They might even have role models. Yeah. That's a great representation, point. right? Also, it just helps you learn better. Like, you're so much more interested in learning something when you can feel connected to it. So Yeah. yeah. Like, like how history is slowly and surely not becoming all old white men who have died 100 years ago. I know. If you, if you teach people about people they are like, they will be interested. Mm. Yeah, exactly. True. Also, being gay is a very recent idea, and uh, most of the people we're going to talk about today would have no sweet clue what we're talking about. A lot of early history that set out to explore the lives of gay people, gay and queer are used interchangeably, was kind of the we've always been here model, where we just try and find mm. people in history and kind of pull them out and say, look, um, Alexander the Great had a male lover. This is proof that homosexuality has always existed in uh, humans. Also, Alexander the Great had a male lover. Don't at me. He did, and he got very sad when he died. It was, it was mm-hmm. a little problematic. He said, "He said, kill me," and then someone actually did. That's a story oh, for another time. <laughs> That's super interesting. Actually, tell us the whole story, Katie. I've talked for so long. I don't like. I, for reference, this is pulling from knowledge that's like really old. But he, I can't remember the name of his lover, and I often get him confused with Hadrian because Hadrian also had a male lover also died young also really distraught over that death but hadrian instead of alexander the great was like i'm just gonna make a cult to this man and he yeah, did didn't he and start he... like a death cult yeah 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 he started a very intense cult to his um... love guys yeah he died of like i want to say they died in the same way which was like a disease that they got from the nile but i could be wrong about that um and he he was they were you know the best of friends <laughs> they were just two bros just roommates that's all yeah they just slept in the same bed we you know um but yeah he was like one of his generals i'm pretty sure oh no he was one of his bodyguards Mm. we called bodyguard to lover okay i was at the bodyguard (laughs) anyway yeah he had a lover and when he died he got very sad and within the year he was poisoned and and died himself alexander Hmm. Or poisoned. We have no proof. There's no autopsy, obviously. So I put poisoned in quotations. I guess that wasn't clear for the, the he listeners. Didn't have a poison taster. Didn't have someone to taste all his food before. Yeah, mm. I don't know. I mean, you would think, but also I'm pretty sure he was just not in a good place. So no. maybe he was like, just a little depressed. send me. Yeah. And then the empire fell apart. So it's all that one guy's uh, fault. In whose rest. fault oh. is it? The face. This is. <laughs> for Good having boy. the audacity to be mortal alexander the great was great okay and he was trying to live his life it's in the name it's in the name <laughs> <laughs> patrick finds the most random things hilarious no that was so funny it was so subtle thank and you i hope everyone else thinks so too. that was like oh my god that takes a cake that's the funniest thing we've ever said on this podcast <laughs> So, Katie, you made a pretty good joke about how they were just guys being dudes, being pals. And that's how a lot of uh, history was for a very long time. Um, Historians would look at people who were, like, 
I don't want to say historians because that's like a gross blanket statement, but um, for a very long time, it was the correct thing to do with, was when you saw someone who was very definitely not straight in history, like fully slept in someone, mm-hmm. slept in the same sex's bed, called each other dear, were married, like wore rings and said, I am married to this person. The popular thing to do is say, they're just gals being pals, guys being dudes, bestest bros, because it was kind of like, um, it was seen as almost character defamation to say they were homosexual because being homosexual was not okay. Mm. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be like going up to someone and uh, going up to a respected historical figure and saying, they stole gas. Yeah, like, you wouldn't do that to someone you respected unless you had a hell of a lot of evidence, and even then you'd probably, like, sleep it under the rug. Um, what you were just saying about how, like, it would be defamation of character speaks to something that we've talked about kind of, I can't remember what episode, maybe in like episode three about how history is constructed by the present. And so the historians were like, oh, but homosexuality is a sin as I understand it. And therefore people from the past cannot be homosexual. So like, you know, it speaks to that kind of imposing your beliefs on the past. Well, just to add on to that. No, I think, uh, I think what Kester's talking about is really interesting when you think about it from both perspectives. You have the historians who are homophobic and come from a homophobic culture and, and apply that presentism to the past. But then you also have sort of like early queer historians who, as Kester was saying, were trying to sort of like not just identify homosexuality in history, but sort of like prove their identity in the present and homosexual identity in the present by by finding it in the past. And so like from multiple perspectives, we have we have these scholars who are, you know, using their their present identities and, and cultures to, to um, look at the past in ways that may not actually work as well as they'd like but uh... patrick has once again marshaled my one lonely thought into a whole sentence a whole concept yes so uh (laughs) but yes so going back to history like saying this person was absolutely not gay they were as straight as can be even though they were sleeping in uh someone of the same sex's bed they were all but legally married is kind of wrong but also saying this is a gay person living in the past it's also kind of wrong because they would have no idea what being gay was. That wasn't a thing. They were in love with a person of the same sex. The invention of someone being gay as like a characteristic doesn't really come out till like the, n- ooh, God. <laughs> like the industrial revolution, kind of? Sounds about right. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, before that, you were guilty of what was legally termed sodomy. I know that's a gross term that a lot of people don't like. I don't like it. it it's a bad mm. way to think. Yeah. Uh, you were guilty of this thing. You weren't, it wasn't part of your identity. It's all about the act. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's all about what's happening to your body. Also, do you think it's good to clarify sodomy is just, just butt sex? It's. Sodomy is non-reproductive right? sex. Non-reproductive sex. Okay. That's. Yeah, Wait. Okay. Hold up. Then isn't a lot of the modern world guilty of sodomy? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so sodomy is any sex that can't get you pregnant. For a very long time, the Catholic Church, sorry to at you Catholics, um, had a lot of problems with a lot of sex. All of it no was way. just kind of anything that couldn't get you pregnant. So that was um, sex while a woman was menstruating, any form mm-hmm. of oral sex, any form of um, sex that didn't involve tab a into slot b beautiful definition it's also i would imagine i would imagine like a big contributor to like lack of 
you know understanding or interest in like the female orgasm because you know it's if it's all about reproduction that you don't care about pleasure and if you don't care about pleasure you certainly don't care about pleasure that isn't from penetration and so you weren't mm-hmm. supposed to enjoy sex it was bad to enjoy sex just sort of because i think a really important example is the example of the puritans talking about you know sodomy is a crime christianity um and the female orgasm uh surprisingly where Essentially, Puritans were an interesting group because they obviously condemned all forms of sodomy, all forms of sex that weren't for reproduction. But they believed that um, you could only like make a baby if both people had orgasms. And like it was at the moment when both people. Yeah, it was the, the moment when both people had orgasms that sparked life in the body and created a baby. Like that was their belief system. And so that's just a weird example of like people who still, you know, did not like sodomy sodomy um but uh we're totally for orgasms so there you go anyway um that's a lot of boring theory i'm just going to end the boring theory part with one thing from john d'amelio who is an absolutely incredible historian if you we love him we, we stand john d'amelio if you ever get <laughs> like 20 minutes to yourself uh mm-hmm. read any of his writing he did some fantastic stuff on like capitalism and sexuality like the history of mm-hmm. being queer and sexuality he also wrote an incredibly baller biography of bayard rustin that we will get into because we love bayard rustin anyway yeah. john d'amelio's whole thing is how we imagine uh that the history of being gay has always been about being silent isolated and oppressed but that's not true we think it's true because that's how being gay has been kind of explained to us to have been it's um been influenced by recent history especially like the aids epidemic like the 20th century has put this whack stamp on a how we imagine history to be forever. But that's not what gay history was. Uh, for a lot of it, it was just people living their lives, um, loving who they loved, um, occasionally having to deal with some repercussions from that that weren't fair and weren't right. But for a lot of it, it was just, hey, I love this person and we're going to live in a little cabin together and adopt some of my nieces and nephews and live our whole lives being happy. So. It's not all the, just history of being uh, sad and oppressed, no matter what period dramas may, make you think. It is happy, too. So, with that little um, salpy PSA, <laughs> uh, let's get into some queer history. One of the first people that we are pretty dang sure was not straight was Sappho. She was an ancient Greek poet. We don't have all of her poetry. We have just a ton of fragments. Rob, uh, Katie is doing like some pump up the air arms. We love her. She's the queen. She's a lesbian queen. She was from the island of Lesbos, and she is where we get the words sapphic and lesbian, both of which are used to describe women who are attracted to women. Uh, she was a lesbian from the island of Lesbos, and the island of Lesbos is still called that to this day. And it's unironically very, very funny that people get upset when they're described as lesbians by because they're from the island of Lesbos. Um, people who live on the island of Lesbos are kind of unhappy that the name of the place they're from is associated with lesbians. They shouldn't be. Lesbians are incredible. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> so we have Sappho. You're talking okay. about Sappho. We have Our Sappho. Um, the ancient Greeks in general were okay with male homosexuality. Um, we mentioned Alexander the Great and his male lover. Um, but they were kind of weird about it. The ancient Greeks were kind of weird about a lot of things in ways we don't really think about it. Sex between men wasn't like, it wasn't, ooh, how do I say this without sounding 
like a sound clip that's going to get played for me five years from now in front of a hearing. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. It's okay. Have- it's ancient Greece. <laughs> it was this power dynamic between people. It wasn't really about romance so much as it was about um, varying levels of power within society. That's why a lot of sexuality was around younger men and older men because it was like a power dynamic. There were a lot of rules about who could do what to who and keep within their gender roles. Whoa, interesting. Wow. Yeah, gender changes. So it was completely okay to be a man and penetrate another man because that was how gender worked. That didn't make you any less of a man. In fact, it made you more of a man. But then the person being penetrated would be seen as less masculine? Yes, because um, they would be taking the passive female role. A lot of this language is going to sound weird and gross to um, people who've grown up in the 21st century, but like, Mm -hmm. it's how we Mm got to talk about it. So, oh yeah, an important thing to consider with it is also that, like, uh, um, as we were saying before, homosexual identity isn't really what we're talking about in this time period, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that have to do with homosexual sex aren't aren't framed around ideas of identity and and sort of like the way you, you, you think of yourself, uh, but more through things of like, like people weren't concerned of homosexual versus heterosexual because that language mm-hmm. didn't exist. But people were more talking about things like a passive role or a, a, an active role or a, a dominant role. Or bottom. Yeah, um, that sort of language. Like that was what mattered. Though That was the more important piece of identity for someone than uh, whether you were a man or a woman or a man, man, woman, woman, that sort of thing. I was just going to interject and say, if you are a um, ancient Greek fanatic and you're about to come into our DMs, we are talking about like <laughs> Athenian classical Greece specifically. That is like the time period in which there was that um, initiation. It's like the best word I can use for that. That rich, yeah, the mm-hmm. dynamic, that kind of older man, younger boy, and that like Ganymede. If you think of Zeus and Ganymede, so don't come for us. We're generalizing because we don't have a thousand hours to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, and if you do come for us, we'll probably ignore you. So yeah. yeah. The ancient Spartans were also famously not straight. Um, They had this incredible homosocial network. Homosocial meaning an area where everyone is of the same gender. Um, So this is the A sorority. Yes, it is. A sorority. It's the Spartan army. It's a girls boarding school. It's an American modern prison. Anywhere where you do not have access to the opposite sex regularly. That makes sense. Like the Spartan army, like you weren't. You'd be out traveling a lot, and you're just with a bunch of other mm-hmm. dudes, so... I mean, it's true of, like, most armies. Like, even yeah. modern armies. Oh. Yeah. Hey, yeah, that's <laughs> that's a topic for another day, but you hit on <laughs> a really important point there. <laughs> yes, that is, yeah. You're with these people for years. Um, it was kind of like a, what happens in the Spartan army stays within the Spartan army. Like, a, I don't know enough about this to talk coherently about it, so... <laughs> we stand, nonetheless. We're just going to move right along, acknowledging that the ancient Greeks were, they knew um, about homosexuality. I did like two hours of Googling, and uh, apparently (laughs) uh, (laughs) East Asia has this incredible history of different approaches to sexuality and gender than like Western historians have like ever dealt with. And it's so cool and so incredible, and I know nothing about it. I cannot form a coherent sentence about it. I don't know this history. It's a huge gap in my knowledge. Um, So I'm just going to say they're cool. I really want to learn about this. (laughs) She's Lord. 
Is there like one thing that stood out to you during your research that you were like, wow, I, I need to know more? Like Thailand has historically almost a third gender of um, men who present more female. Mm-hmm. And then that's like a historical that fact. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, Hawaii's like that, isn't it as well? Hawaii, I should pronounce it correctly. A lot of indigenous epistemologies and indigenous cultures, um, I don't want to pan-indigenize, but several indigenous cultures throughout Canada have that same kind of figure, which is often called two-spirited, where again, it's a third gender or someone who is able to inhabit both the both masculine and feminine energies, uh, or however else you'd like to call it, at the same time. Yeah. yeah. They were often, like, a well-respected person within communities, historically. They were sacred, they, yeah. Yeah, they were sacred. They were seen as, like, wow, this incredible that these people can embody both of these spirits in one. That's something I can't do. And, yeah, they were just a very special person among the community, and it's, it's unfortunate that this was this is a practice that was taken away from them. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to talk more about um, non-binary or third genders in Indigenous cultures, or is that all you got? <laughs> That's all I have. I wish I knew more specifically about different nations, but yeah, same. I don't. I don't know much. I um. I do know that, unfortunately, like many other people who identify, obviously different genders, sexualities, wherever else, that they that two spirited people, just like many other indigenous people, including indigenous women, are still very heavily targeted and um, face a lot of oppression. Things like missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada also spreads to. 2s people to spirit people so it's unfortunate but again i think it has to do with just like how how we kind of seem to approach all of like gender and sexuality with this almost like victorian point of view of like man woman has to be man and a woman can't be anything else anything else is awful and unholy and whatever else it's kind of the same thing of like of because we don't we're a settler colonial society we we can't be open to that whereas if we were and there was indigenous self-governance happening again those those traditional systems of this person would be considered sacred they would be some um someone of high esteem in the community someone who would be looked up to someone who would be a teacher and kind of someone who held a lot of wisdom Mm -hmm. that's not the case anymore and you know obviously that happens throughout history to countless groups and countless different people but that's my ramble (laughs) we love it yeah, Thanks. that's a great one. Because it's interesting too. I know like some um, some Haudenosaunee communities. I know I don't know which one exactly, but if you were, um, if you were two spirit, and let's say you, you leaned more towards the your feminine side or your masculine side, they still had gender roles, but it was totally acceptable for you to take up that role. Like you could go and do those feminine tasks, and no one would question. It. It's like yeah, that's that's a woman doing her work, and or that's a man doing his work. It was just. Part, as long as you're contributing to the community, it wasn't something that was a, a bother or even questioned. Which I think is so interesting, too, because I feel like we're really seeing a lot of that now with um, with transgender people, where now there's kind of like this this absolutism, if that makes sense. Or, you know, that like now that you're trans, you are only male or you are only Mm. female whoever you've transitioned into being and that the idea that you could regress or you could change your gender identity at all is like I feel like that's really looked down upon or there's a lot of stigma obviously I am not a transgender person so I can't speak to this to any extent but from what I have seen and heard throughout the you know kind of throughout the community is yeah like there's like it's okay to be trans now but it's not okay to like 
to detransition or to change your your gender identity drastically because then it's like you were you ever really trans and there's kind of this interesting exceptionalism within the community so i find that really interesting like i i hopefully going forward we see more of that that you're that we accept that gender is fluid not just as a spectrum of like people can identify as multiple different things but you could identify as different things throughout your entire life like you don't it's not one or the other. Uh, it's, it's just interesting that we still apply the, like, gender binary to this thing that we're calling a spectrum, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's even some problems in general with, like, terms. Um, or, I don't know if it's terms. Identifiers. Like, um, um, like terms that, that essentially tell you how you're supposed to act in certain roles, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, if, if you identify a certain way, then there are sort of expectations or things that you kind of have to maybe shift that you might align with perfectly in terms of how you behave um in terms of how like people like generally see those sorts of um identifiers and that sort of thing i think of something like bisexuality um which is obviously incredibly valid but a lot of people who are bisexual really face the stigma of like if you're with a woman then you're a lesbian and if you're uh with a man then you're then you're straight and the idea is that like like how can you do both essentially is, is the sort of stigma that they face and so um labels themselves are just really really frustrating to me um, and you're right, fluid, fluidity um, and, and trying to get rid of as many labels and as many things that like sort of box people's identities in um, is, is probably the good way to go forward. Yes, anyway, you hit on some incredible points that I really want to circle back to, especially uh, the gender binary. It, everyone knows about the gender binary, even if you don't think you do. It's the idea that you are either wholly male or wholly female. It's a little switch and it can go one way or the other. There is no in between. That obviously isn't how reality works for a lot of people and that kind of thinking leaves everyone in the middle of that spectrum kind of high and dry so like you were mentioning transgender issues and i am not a transgender woman i am part of the lgbtq community but that is a experience that is wholly not my own so i'm just basing this off of experiences my friends have had a lot of the experiences they've had is um that when you transition you have to almost overperform your chosen gender in order to be seen as valid. For instance, if you become a transgender woman, a lot of women feel obligated almost to overperform their uh, chosen gender. They um, might take vocal training lessons to raise the pitch of their voice, become very, very good at applying makeup uh, despite not being socialized growing up to do that, just to be able to be seen as valid in the world. Because um, if you're not on one end of the spectrum of the switch or the other end of the switch, you kind of not seen as almost being a valid person that's changing it's changing very slowly it's um and not everywhere but that is changing as we kind of let go of the gender binary in certain ways and that's this isn't telling you that you can't be male or female that's not it at all don't become a knee-jerk reactionary seeing people as being more than just male or female is only going to help us as a society as we realize that hey, there are more options. You can even just choose to opt out of having a gender at all, and you're still a valid person. Your experiences still exist. And when we learn about those experiences, we become better people because we can imagine more perspectives. And this has been another soppy PSA. (laughs) Very well said. That's awesome. Yes, history. Getting back to history. Robin and Liz both had absolutely incredible discussions about 
indigeneity and gender in North America and how that's really cool. And then Europeans came along and said, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like to everything. <laughs> like, yeah, but that's not what we do. So you yeah, can't do that. So objectively, you're wrong. And then, yeah, so. yeah, no. Um, a lot of the first uh, written historical records we have of third gender non-binary genders in north america indigenous cultures come from european colonizers rolling up to america um, looking at these people and just having the world's longest loudest record scratch (laughs) that's a great way to put it (laughs) i love that yeah as they just looked at these people and realized oh my god they aren't falling into the strict gender binaries we as european colonizers have set up they must be wrong, and then they, um, and then they did some real shitty things. Um, in this, in this one, one instance, European colonialism kind of sucked. Only instance, yeah, yeah, yeah. In case it wasn't clear, that was sarcasm. That, that was sarcasm. <laughs> um, again, when this gets played back at a court hearing five years from now, as I'm being prosecuted, that was a joke. European in this world, what are you being prosecuted for? Um, arson. Oh, yeah. Arson. Oh my God. Okay. okay. Right. I like how we've admitted so, to it. Perfect. Yeah. We gotcha. This this podcast is actually about <laughs> catching serial arsonists. Yeah. <laughs> you are already in court. I'm gonna skip over all of history and all of the world because um, we again don't have two thousand hours to talk about this history. It, I'm just gonna hop to the part where it's kind of shitty for a couple hundred years. So buckle in. <laughs> it gets better, guys. It, it gets, gets better. better. It's going to get a lot, lot worse, but it's going to get better soon. So anyway, North America colonialism has happened. It's like the 17, 1800s. The Industrial Revolution is kicking off. And the Industrial Revolution is kind of, in this one instance, again, kind of cool. Um, That was sarcasm. Again, because before the Industrial Revolution, you kind of couldn't exist outside the nuclear family unit properly, like if you were just a normal person. If you're like rich, you could do whatever you wanted. Um, they always can. They always can. They always will be able to do it. Oof. <laughs> we have nothing to lose but our chains. Bill oh. Gates, we're all here. And me and Kester are both single. Even though she just admitted to being a lesbian, she's still single. Elizabeth, I know you're a billionaire. Come at me. <laughs> Lizzie! Yeah. Shout out to Queen Elizabeth if she's listening. She's recently single. <laughs> recently single. Recently oh my god! <laughs> Ready no. to mingle. <laughs> It's hot girl summer, come on. It is hot girl summer for Queen Liz. (laughs) Well, she's still getting over the death of her cousin, so I don't know if we can uh, swoop in. (laughs) That's true, they were cousins. So, in this one instance, capitalism kind of almost benefits normal people. This never happens, so take note, everybody. Because capitalism kind of makes it possible to exist outside the nuclear family structure. You can, as a single person, move to a city and support yourself. And this kind of makes it possible for gay people to um, create a community. Because if you have everyone from a small town who looks at their life prospects in this small town and says, I really don't want to marry someone of the opposite gender and have children, that doesn't seem like the life for me. I'm going to move to a city. And then you do that. And then you meet all the other people who were like, I really don't want to marry someone from the opposite gender. That doesn't seem like the life for me. I'm going to move to the big city. And then you all meet each other. And you're like, hey, I'm the same as you. And the other person's like, hey, we have this trait in common. And that's how like the first gay communities form, uh, is of people moving into cities and um, 
starting to realize that there's other people like themselves and that they can band together and have more political and social power as units. Yeah. Capitalism does something nice for, for a change? Wild. It comes back around to haunt you once we get into, like, Cold War era. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's cool for 30 seconds, and then it becomes terrible again. But um, capitalism makes it possible to move to a city and become someone's gay aunt, who has a roommate that she's weirdly close to, and she never gets married. Time marches on. Um, we have Oscar Wilde's trial. Um, Oscar Wilde, if you have never heard of him, is an Irish poet, uh, a 19th early 20th century mm -hmm. Irish poet and he was extremely extremely gay gay icon he was the first gay icon actually yeah but do you see the way that man sits in a chair like you should look up a picture of him oh yeah controls the room fabulous he's fantastic mm -hmm. and I say he was the first gay icon because he was the first person to push forward the idea of being gay as like a part of your identity because Oscar Wilde got him very large amount of legal trouble for being gay. He went on trial in England. His trial, because he was a famous person, was splashed all over the papers and he was put on trial for sodomy. And uh, this was kind of the first major time where a famous person was prosecuted for this. And uh, he put forward the narrative that this is who I am. I'm not really going to apologize for it. Um, he did end up going to prison. This isn't a happy story for Oscar Wilde. But um, it was the first time gay people could read the newspaper and say like, hey, he is also saying that he is attracted to the same gender and this might be like more than just me being alone being attracted to the same gender so that happens um it's pretty cool it's like this first major moment of like congealing in the gay community as they realize that a there are other people like me and b we might get in legal trouble so we've got to kind of band together and start to fight for our rights and then um I hate to say his name, uh, I apologize, but Sigmund Freud happens. Uh, I can hear uh, a little tiny part of a historian's soul's cringing. Um, if you're not an academic or don't care about Freud, you shouldn't, he sucks. Freud happened, and he figured that homosexuality was... Uh, Freud is wrong about everything, though, so I take this with the largest grain of salt possible. Freud thought homosexuality was a weird regression, but he also thought smoking cigars and having them in your mouth constantly was a weird regression. So he's kind of the first to medicalize homosexuality and make it into, like, a diagnosis. Because before, it was a personal mm -hmm. choice that you did, and it was wrong. It'd be like thievery. But now, Freud is saying, it's kind of not your fault because it's a diagnosis, that mm. there's something wrong with you that makes you want to do these things. So mm -hmm. that's not great, but he's the first person not to say... It's your fault because you know what you're doing is wrong and you're just failing to resist temptation. The bar is on the floor so far for gay rights. So, like, Freud is, like, because he lays the bar upon the ground, it's a step up. So he's the first to kind of uh, medicalize homosexuality and say, hey, there's a way out of this. It's talk therapy and maybe a little cocaine, but we won't talk about that. And then things are kind of crappy for more time. And then... Uh, this is also an extremely brief history of homosexuality. There's more stuff here. I know there's more stuff. We have an hour. Kraft Ebbing happens. Kraft Ebbing is a German psychologist. He's living in the Weimar Republic, which is kind of the bit of Germany that happens between World War I and then Nazi Germany. Again, the bar is on the floor, so they're kind of saying gay rights a little bit. Because Kraft Ebbing uh, is the first uh, psychologist to go after Freud and say, 
hey, let's study gay people to f see why they feel these things and what we can do about it. His whole mythos was, or his whole plan was to fix them still, so he's not great. He's very much not great. Uh, he's saying like, hey, I want to study you, figure out what's going on, maybe try and cure you. And because Labar is again on the floor, he becomes like this hero of gay rights because he's being compassionate and kind. Wild concepts, I know. So he starts to study European gays. He um, receives literally thousands of letters from uh, queer people saying, thank you so much for not saying I'm a monster. And it's really kind of sad because like, get some standards, please, please. I know it's uh, early 20th century Europe, but please, come on, we can do better. And then World War II happens and she gets bad for a bit. But also uh, World War II was kind of cool for people in the Allied armies, uh, specifically Americans and Brits, because they were again in these huge homosocial networks where you could be like, just the, the chances of meeting another queer person like increased exponentially because you were um, young and the same gender group. So you could be like, hey, I am also like you. And you could kind of form this little tiny group of just queer people. And then World War II ends, everyone goes back to their nuclear families. That's not what happens, but again, we're speedrunning. Um, and then Alfred Kinsey comes along. And uh, have any of you ever heard of the Kinsey scale? No. Of course. What? Oh. Wait, none of you have heard of the Kinsey scale? No. Alfred Kinsey was an American researcher. Uh, all these people are, by the way, straight white people, because that's where a lot of the literature is focused. A lot of the literature is focused uh, on the white male experience, and you kind of almost have to go out of your way to find anyone who is a person of color or doesn't identify as male. It's how it be. We're fixing it slowly but surely by God we're fixing it but like there's a lot of white men in this. Anyway, Alfred Kinsey is a pretty cool dude and he wants to study sexuality and he goes around and um, uh, his findings determine actually that um, almost nobody's perfectly straight. Almost everyone fits along the scale, the Kinsey scale. And depending on where you go on the scale, you can be either a zero, perfectly straight, or a six, uh, perfectly homosexual, but almost everyone fits somewhere in the middle and has varying levels of attraction to varying genders. So Alfred Kinsey goes along, he does this huge study of over 3,000 people. He determines that, hey, people are a lot less perfectly straight than we think they are, and that might be okay. And gay people, hearing someone say, that might be okay, from somewhere in the distance go, yeah! Again, the bar is on the floor. We are just coming out of World War II. <laughs> so Kinsey um, promotes his findings and everyone's like, wait, you're saying we're not all perfectly straight? And um, people were very upset about this for a very long time. And then the Lavender Scare happens. Do you guys know about the Lavender Scare? Should I even try it? No. No, I don't know it. So if you've ever studied American history, particularly Cold War history, the Red Scare is what happens after World War II going into the Cold War. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind. Where there's this huge level of paranoia in the government. People are seeing communists everywhere. Um, there's this whole huge complicated history of it. Uh, a lot of it's linked to uh, racism and anti-Semitism. 
and those are insanely huge topics, so we're not going to touch it. But uh, people are seeing communists everywhere, and some yahoo gets in his head that gay people are liabilities in the government, specifically because, and this is going to be a lot of leaps, so follow me along, if a gay person is in a high level in the government, um, and the communists find out that they're gay, then the gay person is compromised because the communists can blackmail them into revealing their sexuality to the world. Therefore, all gay people must be removed from the government so that they are no longer security liability risks. So every single government employee from the White House to like bus drivers had to be interviewed to determine if they were straight or not. Because if they weren't straight, they had to be removed from the government because they were security risks. And this is a lavender scare because people like making dumb puns. Wow. Also, why'd they pick lavender of all colors? What a weird choice. Wow. Because uh, the red scare was about communists and the lavender scare was pink because gay people. Wow. My jaw was on the floor during that, FYI. I had no idea. I had never heard of that. That's crazy. Thousands of people were fired from the government. And they um, they started doing the shitty thing that um, homophobes and transphobes do, where they're like, I can tell you're gay or trans or not perfectly straight just by looking at you. And this mm. is really gross. Um, straight people, I, I promise you, um, you can't really tell. You don't have gaydar. Drop that term from your vocabulary, please everyone because you can't tell by looking at a person if they're straight or not or if they're uh the gender they were assigned at birth and i'm um, trying to do that just punishes people who don't exactly fit what you think being a man or a woman looks like so um there's a lot of instances where they'd look at a man who walked with swishy hips and they were like you are homosexual we're gonna fire you from your government job and deny you pension and then uh mccarthy specifically looked at one woman and said she has a masculine jawline, therefore she is a lesbian, therefore we're going to fire her from the government and deny her pension. So anyway, it's gross, it's bad. Um, a lot of people trying to save their own skins threw their friends under the bus, like you get hauled in for this interview in a police headquarters, I imagine, like single lamp hanging from the ceiling, a man in front of you demanding to know about your sexuality and like what you do in bed in the 50s in America. And um, wow. they'd say, hey, if you tell us about 12 different gay people, we'll let you off easy. So it was like this enormous witch hunt where instead of torture, yeah. they just say, yeah. hey, we will tell everybody that you are gay if you don't give up your friends. And a lot of people did. And it was very, very shitty and gross. Yes. And now, Patrick, do you want to talk about Byron Rustin for a bit? Because I need a little joy in my life. Where do we start with this man? Um, he's actually on our, was it the uh, history date uh, social that we did? Yeah. Lost Prophet is the biography that we mentioned by um, John D'Amelio. Uh, one of the one of the greatest history books I've ever read. It's really, really well done. Um, so Byron Rustin, in short, is a, rather was, a black, gay, socialist, pacifist, activist who lived uh from i i don't remember when he was born but he lived throughout the 20th century um and he was basically sort of like a generation before uh martin luther king and and malcolm x and sort of like civil rights leaders from the 60s in terms of age he was incredibly involved in the civil rights movement among many other pacifist related movements he's a really interesting guy he deserves his own episode which i'll probably do eventually i think 
but uh i mean a few of his highlights he like he he was protesting for nonviolent direct action far before martin luther king did he actually taught martin luther king how to do nonviolent direct action he's a per- he was like the mentor to king who who brought in that strategy he with agency went to prison whatever that word would be but like he like he he decided to go to prison uh, during the world war ii as a uh, as a conscientious objector yeah and in the process, a part of his goals was he essentially tried to, he led like demonstrations, like sit-ins in prison to desegregate the prison in 39, 40, 41, like in those years. Um, so he did that sort of stuff. Uh, he went overseas. He did stuff with decolonizing Africa. He he was like literally every, like he had so many different causes and he's rarely really remembered in general. Uh, but if he's remembered for anything, it's his involvement in the civil rights movement. He was quintessential in um, planning the March on Washington um, he was the one who was like really behind the scenes and made that whole event happen. He's a he's a wonderful person. He's such a funny, funny guy, too. He's really, really great. Um, and one of the most interesting things about him is that because he was from like sort of a generation before, and this really gets it even in the 20th century, the sort of minutia about um, homosexual identity um, is that for the time that he lived, he wasn't a, a young person by the time the gay liberation movement happened in the 70s. And so he wasn't really involved in it, which sounds so strange. You know, you think of like a black gay socialist pacifist uh, civil rights activist and, and you think, well, of course, he's going to be involved in gay liberation. But he really wasn't. Um, and that's because um, based on the time that he lived, his homosexuality wasn't as much of a, like a piece of his identity in a way that needed to be to be protested. Um, as younger people felt uh, who were involved in the, in the gay liberation movement. And so um, his husband, uh, for the time before he died, was much younger than him. Um, and, and his husband was sort of more involved in that scene. But it was it's just a really interesting way to think about homosexuality and, and identity in that clearly he, he identified as a gay man um, openly and outwardly. And that's the other thing is he was an open gay man in like the 40s and 50s and 60s, which is crazy. But even even with that identity, he didn't feel the need to get involved in the in the liberation movement in the 70s. So that's wild. I could go on about him for a while. He's a really cool guy. If you've ever seen a picture of Bayard Rustin, there's one very, very famous one. And it's of him sitting next to and kind of behind Martin Luther King at a court hearing. And he's kind of leaning forward and talking to Martin Luther King. And I think that really encapsulates his position in like the world because Bayard Rustin um, got a lot of flack for being gay. And it's kind of why he had to take a backseat role in a lot of the civil rights stuff. Like he he organized the March on Washington, but he was just the guy in the back with like a, a clipboard being like, you walk over there, you stand in front with the banner. Because um, every time he kind of rose to ascendancy in the civil rights movement and kind of started making waves for himself, some reporter would dig up like his multiple arrests for um, lewd behavior for having sex with another man especially in the backseat of cards. Um, he traveled a lot, so like, get what you can get. Um, some reporter would bring up his multiple convictions for sex offenses, because that's what they were, and he would have to like kind of take the backseat again, because when you say so-and-so is a convicted sex offender, people don't generally stick around for the explanation that it was a consensual thing between two adults. They're like, the leader of your movement is a sex offender, we're not gonna support this. Yeah. In some points in his career, even like MLK sort of was standoffish with him um, because of his, his homosexuality. And, and there are times when they wouldn't really talk for a couple of years and then they'd get back together and talk and then sort of like keep going anyway and, and that sort of thing. Um, he's a fascinating guy. He was yeah. fighting to desegregate Southern prisons in 1939. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. He he had a Rosa Parks moment, I think like at least five, if not almost ten years before Rosa Parks happened. Like before the bus boycott. Like, so he and a bunch of other activists essentially got on these buses, um, like Greyhound buses from the north and that were traveling south and would, would sit in what would, by the time the buses got to the south, be the white-only seats. Because, like, segregation wasn't in law in the north in the same way. There was segregation in the north, but it wasn't in, in the same way. And so um, that you were allowed to sit in pla- in various spots on the bus or whatever. Um, in the north, by the time it got you into the south, uh, you wouldn't be allowed to. And essentially... There was a time when these laws were starting to change to try and make it so that black people could sit wherever they wanted on a bus when it crossed state lines if it started in the north. And so they tried to test that theory to show how uh, even when you change the law, the culture itself doesn't necessarily change at the same time. And so they sat in uh, sort of front seats and and um, got you know, like you know, harassed, arrested, assaulted, all that sort of stuff. Um, and they were doing this. And I... I I feel bad. I haven't read the book in a little while, so I, I'm not firm up on the dates, but I think late forties or something like that. Like they were doing this. Um, and, and I think the bus book was like 55, 56 or something. So, um, like this is like, he is like the proto everything that I love about this. Civil was rights movement. a trained activist. Like, um, yes. he spent the whole bus ride, him and his co- cohort would spend the whole bus ride, like educating people and uh, explaining their reasoning. And he was so well-spoken. He was an award-winning tenor and would sing in churches. He was also a Quaker, and his religion was a huge part of his life. And he was an insanely brave man. Like, you think you're brave? Um, Try telling a prison warden that segregation in prisons is unconstitutional because you want to be with your white lover. Look up Brad Rustin. He should not be forgotten. And he isn't. But learn about him. This has been episode eight. Thank you, Kestra, for coming on. This is great. Yes, thank, thank you, Kestra. You. I learned so much. Lots of learning. But we're not done with Kestra. We're actually going to be having her back for uh, a second part to this little series that we're doing, uh, where she's going to talk to us about what? Kestra, what are you going to talk to us about next time? I'm going to do some more uh, overall queer history, and then I'm going to get into the AIDS epidemic um, how it happened, um, the history behind that, and how it's still extremely, extremely relevant to our lives today. Um, it's a bummer of a topic, but we're going to try and make it fun. We're going to try and make it a little exciting. And yeah. um, by the end of it, you will be very, very angry at a lot of people. So oh, yeah. treasure that rage in your heart. And I will say, uh, Kestra is a major medical history nerd, nerd, <laughs> medical history nerd, um, as well as a big uh, queer history nerd. And so we're going to, you know, put both of those together next time. It'll be really great. Uh, I think I think as the first guest, I think Kestra should say. As the first and probably only guest, I will say. Uh, <laughs> uh, see you on the flippity flop. Digital Dust is recorded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapawak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796, and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis peoples, and Inuit peoples whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and the waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingham, and Robin Marshall. 
Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Matthias Miller. Thank you.